Hello, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm Rustin Perret and, and I'm Aaron Johnson and we're starting this new podcast thing, I guess, called uh, Primordial Soup Pot. Yes. Uh, thank you to all seven listeners who will find this pilot episode. Wait, we have seven listeners. That's all I'm anticipating. Dude, I, I would be surprised if we have seven listeners at all. I mean, two of them are my parents. <laughs> I think maybe seven people I know know that I'm doing this. Much less are actually listening. So to our our listener, welcome and we hope you enjoy this. So just to kind of talk about like the format. So both me and Aaron have done research and picked a topic to talk about relating to ecology, evolution, or the research thereof. Uh, We're each going to spend half the show talking about our topic and yeah, just going through and explaining it to the other person. So we both have our topics prepared for today. And I think, Aaron, you said you were going to go first? Yes, I will go first. And I will add that neither of us know what the other person's topic is. So the reactions are hopefully genuine, unless you happen to pick a very broad topic that everyone knows about. Yeah, that, that was a very important detail I left out in that atrocity of an introduction that I just gave. So I will go first. Today, I'm going to be talking about the coelacanth. Have you heard of that before, Rustin? Uh, yes, I have. I mean, we were in the same biology classes in college, so... Yeah, we were. <laughs> so, coelacanth. The coelacanth was a lobe-finned fish that went extinct about 50 million years ago. Okay, yeah. No, that's all I got. That's your part? Yeah, you can go. <laughs> I guess I'm really going to dominate this first episode. People are going to be like, wow, that Aaron guy really sucks at research. He had one fact. Except it didn't go extinct. <laughs> okay, so the coelacanth. It went extinct, but it didn't. So first, I'm going to tell you the difference between lobe-finned fish and ray-finned fish, because this is important. Wait. If you want to find a ray-finned fish, fish, fish... are divided just based on their fins? Like well, that, no, that's there's, what, that's what there's more than that. Up. It's a very... It's a, it's a generalization. Rustin, can you tell me how to find a ray-finned fish? I don't know. Get a large net and start casting? Any fish. You stick your head underwater, you've found a ray-finned fish. Uh, they constitute the vast majority of all fish alive today. Some of the few exceptions are lamprey, hagfish, and sharks and rays. Ray-finned fish, they have the bony spines with skin stretched over them. So think of like smallmouth bass. It's got those fins on the side. You look at them, you can see the little spines. Yeah. Even if the fish don't have fins like eels, there may still be a ray finned fish. They're so diverse and they are found all over the world. Okay, so basically just fish as we know them. Fish as we know them. Now lobe finned fish, they don't have that. They kind of got a fleshy lump on the side of them. It looks more like a paddle. And they're also closer related to terrestrial vertebrates. So they're they're related to us because of their fleshy lumps? Yes. Our, the fleshy lumps bring us together. Oh, that's, that sounds disgusting and heartwarming at the same time. So Sarcopterigi, I'm just going to call them lobe fin fish, gave rise to all tetrapods. If we go all the way back to... Tiktaalik, which I think is one of our oldest tetrapod ancestors. You see that little dude more or less looks like a fish. He's got four lumps on the side and he used them to waddle onto land all those years ago. Now, we found plenty of fossils of lobefin fish and we know they covered a vast variety of niches. And this is a fun fact, and I bet you didn't know this. There is one that actually had six limbs. It was a hexapod, not a tetrapod. Okay. So there's an alternate timeline where all terrestrial vertebrates had six limbs instead of four. Yes, and that planet was the one from Avatar, right? <laughs> where they all had six limbs. Except the blue people, they didn't count. Oh yeah, the, the blue people had four limbs. Like Maybe they like morons. had little vestigial ones, they tucked them under the armpits. <laughs> Imagine like somebody in Avatar just like raises their arm. Like, in class, and there's just, like, another arm, like, coming out of the armpit, like, hi! <laughs> little armpit jazz hands. Just little T-Rex arms coming out of the armpit. <laughs> also, all of these seem to die off following the Permian extinction. 
not attic specifically, but the years following, they just slowly kind of dwindled off. And ray finned fish took advantage of most of these available niches. So here we have it. They're all dead. Rewind to South Africa, 1930s. Miss Marjorie Courtney Latimer is a South African woman with a passion for nature. She loved being outdoors, and at the age of 11, she swore she would become a quote-unquote bird expert. Uh, fortunately, things didn't go that way because she became a nurse. However, she only worked that briefly before interviewing at a position for the East London Museum. She didn't have any formal education in natural history or anything maintaining a museum archives, but she nailed the interview, uh, very charismatic, and she had a lot of naturalist knowledge, so she started right away. So she didn't have any education, just like a, just a can-do attitude, huh? Street smarts, that's all you need. Degree's just a piece of paper Hell that yeah. we paid a lot of money for. Yeah. I'm still paying for. Good to know that I wasted four years of my life when all I needed was street smarts. <laughs> it's just a can-do attitude, Rustin. <laughs> imagine, imagine someone in college just being like, yeah, I'm majoring in street smarts. <laughs> that's probably them just sneaking in the cafeteria to get free food. Yeah, you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I really got to work on my thieving 101 project, you know? <laughs> okay, so as a curator, one of her jobs was to regularly inspect the docks and shoreline for new museum specimens. Okay. Now, that, that sounds demeaning to yeah. me. She's rooting around the trash is what they're having her do. Now, she might enjoy that. I probably would think it's cool if I found, like, a dead shark on the beach. You know, I'd poke it with a stick. I know. But... I've seen you poke dead puffer fish <laughs> yeah, with a stick. Yeah, you have seen that. <laughs> but that should not be in her job title as the curator to personally go out and poke dead fish with a stick. I mean, probably not. But it's at least, at least they're being honest with what your job is. Like, most job applications, they're like, you apply for, like, a, a garbage man. They're like, landfill technician, you know? Is what they call the job. Technician. Oh, that's the key one. I oh, yeah. myself am a technician right now. Uh, I am not a technician. I'm a specialist. Oh, okay. You've moved up the corporate ladder, I see. Yeah, yeah. I work with other technicians. Definitely, though. All I'm saying is that at least they're not, like, throwing in all kinds of euphemisms here. You know, they're being pretty honest with what she's doing. Hey, yeah, uh, you can start next Thursday. You're going to root around the garbage. Uh, if you find something cool, we will take all the credit for it. Yeah, knock yourself out there. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. All right, we're gonna hire you for a job where you where if you find anything, you get not you get none of the credit whatsoever. Can you imagine if she did this in like Ocean City? She'd be ruined through like Pepsi cans and heroin needles all day. <laughs> yeah, Pepsi cans, heroin needles, the occasional dollar bill with Coke residue on it. Oh, can't forget that. Who can? Yeah. Empty french fry containers with mysterious liquids at the bottom. Uh, apparently you haven't spent as much time on the boardwalk as I have. <laughs> no, I don't think I have. I've only been to Ocean City like three times and you were there. Oh, I never yeah. went there as a kid. Yeah. I mean, you weren't missing much. No, I don't think I was. This listener out there, if you're there's a there's a possibility you're not from the United States, but Beach Town, that's pretty trashy. It has no redeeming qualities other than it's cheap and it's there. Yes, location and price; those are the two main things it's got going for it. Actual quality experiences are not to be found there. So, one fateful day in 1938, she received a call about a strange fish that was caught in some bycatch. Uh, she drove all the way down and found a strange fish she had never seen before. She described it as this. I picked away at the layers of slime to reveal the most beautiful fish I had ever seen. It was five feet long, a pale mauvey blue with faint flecks of whitish spots. It had an iridescent silver blue green sheen all over it. It was covered in hard scales and it had four limb like fins and a strange puppy dog tail. And lots of fleshy lumps. Lots of fleshy lumps. Personally, I think she might be a bit biased to see this because nothing about the coelacanth screams puppy dog tail to me. <laughs> it's pretty ugly. It's a very ugly fish. I would not describe it as the most beautiful fish I'd ever seen. 
Not to mention, it had been out in the sun for quite a while. It was dead. Uh, this thing was starting to rot, and it was probably pretty stinky. Yeah, I mean, it really, she kind of just sounds like a, like someone who's rooting around in the trash for years and finally found something interesting. Yes. So, very interesting fish, but she didn't know what it was. She did not recognize the fish as a coelacanth because her background was in the fish that she knew alive today. She had been used to seeing like the usual, sometimes rare specimens, but living ones. This was unlike anything she'd seen. She knew she had to bring it back to the museum, and this is the tricky part. So she had t- gone down with an assistant, and they had taken a taxi down there. They had no means to bring this fish back. I don't know how this happened, and I could not find any sources to elaborate on it. She convinced the taxi driver to haul a 127-pound fish in the back of the cab. (laughs) 127-pound rotten fish in the back of the cab. (laughs) Now, I can't smell as a little background, but I can imagine that this stunk really bad. You know that's a cab driver who's really seen some shit. Yeah. If if he's just like, all right, put this rotten fish in my cabin, let's get going. Like doesn't even. Oh man, you gotta one. roll down the window. <laughs> I wonder if they just tried to stick it back there without like telling him. <laughs> well, maybe one of them's like trying to hold a conversation with him up front, and the other one's like wedging it into the back. <laughs> hey, don't worry, man. Just roll down the window. You'll be fine. Just keep going. No, like, what if they just, like, had it, I don't know, I feel like they could have just, like, put it in, like, a really large suitcase, you know? It was five feet long. Oh, you could, like, fold it. (laughs) Fold it? (laughs) (laughs) We've got fleshy lump fish origami going on. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, you just just kind of fold it so that, like, or, or, like, arrange it so that it kind of, like, fits crossways in the suitcase, you know? Pole-like object. Like, if you're packing an umbrella in a suitcase... I have never packed. Oh, the umbrellas collapse, don't they? Well, not the ones. Not, not the ones. Well, some of them do, but like the the nicer ones that just kind of extend and have the little like candy cane handle. Oh yeah, they don't really collapse. Yeah, but I don't put those in suitcases. I'm just saying, hypothetically, if you did arrange it diagonally, you know, they might have done something similar with the coelacanth in the suitcase. I hope they like had a tarp or something to put down. Or maybe wrap it in some gauze, or I don't know. The interior must be just ruined in that cab. Oh, 100%. They (laughs) had to tip the guy well. She is in the stinky taxi cab, hauling this 127-pound dead fish. No idea what it is, but knows it's important. She manages to get it back to the museum. Uh, And she couldn't figure out what it was based off of any modern literature. And she tried to talk to the head of the museum about this, saying that this was important. And he completely brushed it off. Did not care at all. He told her it was a rock cod and then left. He went on vacation that day. (laughs) He said, screw you and your fish. I don't give a shit. I'm out of here. And they look nothing like a rock cod. I don't even think he stopped to look at the fish. Rock cods are, I'm pretty sure they're orange. This was like a dark blue. And they look nothing alike. He literally just did not care at all and left. So she tried calling her friend, Dr. J.L.B. Smith. He was a renowned ichthyologist, but he was unavailable at this time. So she still didn't know exactly what she had. She knew it was important, and she knew that it was rotting because it stunk the high hell. So she had to get it preserved. She took it to a morgue, and they politely declined her because they don't deal with 127-pound, 5-foot-long, smelly fish. I think she took it to a hospital also. I know eventually she found a taxidermist, and he was finally able to help her preserve it. So it's no longer rotting. It's intact. Mostly. She must have looked absolutely mad just running around town with this giant (laughs) rotten fish like, you gotta help me out. This one's important. (laughs) It's got a puppy dog tail. Come on. How can you say no to that? I'm just imagining her like wheeling this this, like 127 pound fish around in like a baby carriage in South Africa. (laughs) 
I have no clue how she actually moved it around. Uh, I don't know if she was with the same taxi driver. I'm assuming he took off as soon as he dropped her off. I mean, if anything, I mean, this this could also support my suitcase theory. You know, <laughs> suitcase? Just... It's still a heavy suitcase. Okay, so, yeah, I don't know. She could have carried it. Maybe That's... she also invented the first rolling suitcase. Just to <laughs> haul around the silicon. <laughs> a lesser known discovery by her made a remarkable ecological discovery and or evolutionary discovery and also made travel that much easier <laughs> she probably had one of those like old like 1920s red wagons that all the kids would carry around just hauling it around down the streets frantically knocking on every door asking people what to do with it eventually dr smith was able to come around marjorie did write him a couple times and based off of her description, he kind of thought, like, this sounds like a coelacanth. And I think he might have said that, but it's still very up in the air, and he's, you know, keeping an open mind. And then he gets there, and he sees that is a coelacanth. That's it. The species was named Latermeria calumnae. The genus was after Miss Latimer herself, and calumnae was after the river that it was found. So here we have it, the coelacanth, a long-thought extinct fish, uh, totally made the news. Everyone was freaking out about this uh, for a little bit. How long is a little bit? Well, World War II happened, Rustin. <laughs> that would tend to draw some news coverage, yeah. Yeah, but it was a big discovery. Dr. Smith actually put a bounty to find the second specimen. This took over 10 years because of World Coelacanth. War II. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that tends to put a damper in things. Yeah. It's kind of hard to look for coelacanths when there are U-boats everywhere. <laughs> so, since then, we've learned a fair bit about the fish. It's relatively large, and it may live up to 100 years. They live in deeper waters, and they kind of just drift around. They're very generalist predators. They just eat what is there and what will fit in their mouths. Are they one of those fish that, um, so if they live in deeper waters, whenever they get brought to the survey, do their eyes pop out? Like, I know that happens with a lot of deep sea fish. Yes, that does happen to fish. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how deep those deep yeah. waters have to be. I don't know the range. So what else do we know about coelacanths, like in terms of their life cycle? Yes. So, obviously, the lobe fins, that's the most extraordinary feature about them, because the lobe fins resemble the limbs of a tetrapod. A tetrapod, we are tetrapods. Birds are tetrapods. Horses are tetrapods. If it is a terrestrial vertebrate, if it has a backbone and it lives on land, it is a tetrapod. They also have a vestigial lung. That's very interesting. They obviously do not use it to breathe air because they live in the deep ocean. I don't think they come to the surface to breathe, or at least I don't think it's known for them to do that. But it acts as a swim bladder and a ray fin. If it still has a function, is it still vestigial? Uh, then I would assume vestigial the way... The article worded it is it may be very reduced in usage, kind of like a tailbone on a human. We still got it. Okay. Uh, it does have a purpose, but it's been dramatically reduced from what it once was. Okay, got it. All right. Interesting. Oh, they also gave live birth. I was going to ask about that. Like, I wanted to hear more about their life cycle. Yeah, not much is known, surprisingly, because they're hard to find. Uh, they do give live birth, and I think gestation period can take a couple years. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so you're not going to find a lot of these. But none of this is the most important thing. What is the most important thing? The most important thing is the impact as a living fossil. Have you ever heard the term living fossil before? Yeah, all the time. Okay, that term sucks. <laughs> It is kind of, yeah. So it was actually termed by Darwin himself. And it's used to describe organisms that physically resemble an ancestral species, usually found only in the fossil record. But it's been blown out of proportion ever since then. And the term has kind of been bastardized. 
we found a few other species. There's a couple bugs and plants. None of them are particularly interesting looking. They're all pretty small and easily overlooked. And they have been known from fossils before they were discovered still living. So we found the fossils first and then the living organisms. That's always a rare surprise. This has led to a kind of phenomenon that there are just tons of unknown species waiting to be discovered, which is true, but not in the way that people use it. Yes, there are mass droves of undescribed insects and bacteria and moss, but because the coelacanth is alive today, that does not mean that we have sauropods living in Africa. There is no plesiosaur living in the Loch Ness, and we do not have pterosaurs flying around in New Guinea. Wait, so you're telling me that Jurassic Park lied to me? Unfortunately, it did. What the hell? You're going to have to write them a very angry letter. I'm expecting a lawsuit from you. All right, yeah, I got to call my lawyer, and or I don't know. <laughs> Maybe send Steven Spielberg a, a bag of dung for ruining my, for misleading me my entire childhood, making me think that dinosaurs could be real. Well, they were real. Well, that I could ever see a living dinosaur. Oh, Rustin, you should know better than this. You see living dinosaurs all the time. Aaron, that is not a polite way to talk about my grandparents. <laughs> Birds. Right, right. What <laughs> you're talking about? Just... Okay. Just a little bit for the audience, eh? Pretty much, yeah. It's just, oh no, I was trying to be funny here, man. <laughs> yeah, you're trying, all right. Hey, I made you laugh. It seems like I succeeded a little bit. <laughs> okay, so people use the coelacanth to justify the existence of cryptids. Uh, like I said, people will say, okay, the coelacanth disappeared from the fossil record and then we found it living again today. If that's the case, we can expect everything can do the same. In a sense, dinosaurs could still be out there. We just have to look a little harder for them. And people use this to justify the existence of a lot of cryptids, namely Bigfoot. Uh, we don't have fossil evidence of any large hominids roaming around the Pacific Northwest. However, people say, ah, the coelacanth, that disappeared. Bigfoot could still be there. Uh, essentially, the argument of the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. It supports some ideas like a young Earth under 10,000 years old. Because this is supposed to be extinct and it's swimming around today. So, basically, the discovery of the coelacanth has given oxygen to a bunch of quote-unquote scientific theories absolutely is fueled all kinds of gnarly yeah, fires all kinds of conspiracy theories basically i wonder what would have happened like what kind of reaction you would have gotten from the scientist if you had told her like in the 1930s that she would take this job and her work would provide le semi-legitimate evidence for bigfoot conspiracies conspiracies basically like, She's probably too busy cramming her fish into a suitcase <laughs> with her patented rolling briefcase design. <laughs> She's probably like, please, I don't I don't care what kind of crazy dream you had last night. I really just need to get this fish to the nearest scientist to figure out what the hell it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking him to the morgue. He's going there right now. They got to do the, something. The morgue. Come on, Heron. It belongs in a museum. So. Here's the thing about living fossils. There's tons of them. Okay. So many animals can be described as a living fossil. Sharks, crocodiles, horseshoe crabs, ginkgo trees, mantis shrimp, triops, silverfish, platypus, scorpions, boatloads of different protists and bacteria. Uh, the amount of organisms that can be living fossils is actually pretty big. So what how how long does an organism have to have been around to be described as a living fossil like what's the what's the threshold there so i don't know a specific threshold but what it is is if an organism is has a relatively unchanged basic design scheme they can use it as a living fossil 
Crocodilians is a great example. We still have some 20 to 30 species today. They used to be much more diverse if you go all the way back to the Mesozoic era. Uh, there were some that galloped on all four, like a big cat. There were some that had like a turtle-like shell. There were some that were massive. Some were tiny. Some were herbivores, carnivores, and everything in between. Nowadays, we just have the basic kind of crocodile morph. Same for sharks and rays, cartilaginous fish. We don't have as many as what once were, but they still kind of fit the same basic design scheme. And if you compare them to a fossil, they will look similar in their design. I actually, I found the list on Wikipedia of everything that's considered a living fossil. The first one was moss. Not some moss, all moss. Literally every single species of moss can be considered a living fossil. Huh. The, the stuff that grows out of like sidewalk, you always chipping it off your roof and driveway, that's on par with the coelacanth. That's how much the coelacanth was blown out of proportion if moss is kind of more or less the same thing. The only difference is the coelacanth pulled a Houdini on us and disappeared in the fossil record. So the key point here is it's not the same species we're digging up. The coelacanth alive today is not the same species that we find fossils of. They're just fitting the same design scheme. If you look at various fossils of them, there's all kinds of variations and alterations of them. If I showed you a fossil of, say, like a smallmouth bass, and then I discover, let's say, something like a pike, if you just look at the bones, they're going to fit a relative shape. They're going to look similar. That is not the same thing. Okay, I got you. So, yes, it is a lineage that we thought went out, and it did disappear in the fossil record for a little bit, but it is not the same species. So, there are some better terms to describe these living fossils. Some alternatives are Lazarus taxons, and others are stabilomorphs, because they have kept the same relative shape throughout the millennia. And another thing about these living fossils is they're kind of usually isolated to pockets. Platypus has a pretty tiny range. It's just found in Australia. A coelacanth, it, granted it's in the open ocean, but you're not finding it in like every fishing trawl. It's still pretty sparse out there. They're either restricted to a small pocket or they're a very generalist and their diet, so they can fit a variety of niches like sharks and crocodiles. There are a lot of them. We like have an estimate for the current population of coelacanths. Like, how many coelacanths do we think are out there? You know, I bet there is an estimate, but I don't think it's a very good one. That makes sense. There's just not a lot to go off of here. I don't even think there's many physical specimens that we have in museums. And that brings me to my next point. So, fabulous transition, Rustin. Yay! The coelacanth is not the only lobefin fish alive today. There are six species of lungfish. Have you ever heard of those before? Yes, I have. Yes, there are six species of those alive today, and they're found in South America, Africa, and Australia. So, they're kind of spread out. They are freshwater, by the way. Although their fins are reduced in most species, so it's just kind of a little wisp, they look more eel-like, they are still a lobe-finned fish. And they also have this sort of lung that the coelacanth does, but they actually use them. Hence the name lungfish. So they can breathe atmospheric oxygen if there's very low dissolved water in like a muddy puddle, which you would typically find them in. Actually... Another coelacanth species was discovered. This was in the late 90s. This was found by Dr. Mark Erdman, and he was on his honeymoon. He took his wife to a fish market. And found a coelacanth? Yes, but on his honeymoon, he took his wife to a fish market. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't know. She might love that. I don't know what her interests are, but I know, like, my dad's a civil engineer, if he took my mom on their honeymoon and he took her to, like, a farm, I don't think she'd be very happy. <laughs> I don't think she'd be happy at all. Probably not. I mean, it's possible that she's, like, also, uh, like, an ichthyologist. and She might be. I did not read that. But if you're an accountant, you don't just, like, take your wife to the IRS headquarters and just walk around on your honeymoon. 
I mean, what I will say is that if she was an ichthyolo- also an ichthyologist and really just wanted to go to a fish market on her honeymoon, imagine what the wedding looked like. You know, just like fish, just like fish everywhere. <laughs> just, they replaced the bouquets with dead fish. Yeah. <laughs> they tossed the bouquet at the, at the wedding reception. Everyone's, everyone at the wedding is just like. Nobody ah, wants ah. to catch it. They all Nobody step aside and then plop on the floor. They're just like, yeah, I don't need to get married at all. It's fine. I'm good. And then the floors comes out with a suitcase full of coelacanth. <laughs> rolling it around hey thanks miss marjorie real helpful so the fish was known by the locals as an oil grouper and it had a reputation for being very oily and very unpleasant to eat and apparently causes some very gnarly diarrhea which is probably why the entire fish was just being sold for 12 dollars. how big was the fish but the other one was five feet long yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, well, actually, well, no, you know it doesn't because I mean, do you know how expensive like chum is? Like, even if you were even if you were going to eat it, you could still use it for chum, and like chum is chum can be pretty expensive. Like, I mean, the coelacanth is kind of ugly. I mean, maybe it was just a favor to buy it off the the fishermen. You know, they don't want to sit around having to look at it all day. I don't know. I'm, it's possible they also knew it was like a rare and or and or endangered species, and they were like, "We don't want people knowing we caught this fish. Just take it, get rid of it here." I don't think they knew what it. No, they had known what it was. It was called an oil grouper. They had a name for it, but they didn't. They weren't aware of the significance of it. And why would they be? It doesn't affect their way of life. All they know it as this disgusting bycatch that tastes like garbage, gives you the poops. Yeah, $12. I hope they upsailed it, the ichthyologist. They see him eyeing it up and he's like, ah, for you, my friends, $300. Fishermen in the back are high-fiving and laughing to each other. They're just like, yeah, ignore that sign that says 12 bucks. That's for a different fish. Oh, that was a lightning sale. That's done. That's over. He sharpies it out. Yeah, that's that sale just ended. You got a, you got a different price now. It was 90% off. You're like an hour late. You know? Oh, look at that. Half past five. Sorry. <laughs> you got to pay full price now, buddy. So we have two species of coelacanth alive today. There are rumors of a third that's in West Java. There's no hard evidence for this, but I'd say it's still fairly likely. The ocean's a big place, and we've already found two coelacanth. That makes sense, yeah. And just to put the final nail in the coffin, we have two species in now. We can compare their DNA. Going back to the point I made earlier, where it's a common misconception that if an animal looks the same physically, roughly, it must be the same, it must be unchanged, and it is the exact same species. Well, here we have two coelacanth that probably look very similar to each other. And if you look at their bones, might look almost identical to each other, but they're two separate species. They inhabit two different ranges, and as far as we know, they do not interbreed. And when we compare their DNA together, it supports that they diverged about 200,000 years ago. That's as old as humans. So that's not a living fossil. It just split off when we did. (laughs) It's about as old as us. So it is not a missing link. It is rather a neat little side branch that did its own thing, disappeared for a little bit, and came back. And that is the coelacanth, a fish that went extinct but didn't, and is a one of a kind living fossil, but also isn't. And if you call it a living fossil, I'm going to kick you in the ribs. Wow. Well, thank you for spending like, you know, 30 minutes or so just like totally pouring a giant bucket of ice water on every exciting thing to deal with the coelacanth. It it was interesting to find, and it's certainly a cool-looking fish, but it's not a living fossil. I would say nothing is. I don't think we should use that term. That is my humble opinion. Right. So it's just, so yeah, so it's just like a really cool fish that people kind of overhyped a lot. It wasn't overhyped. The excitement was real, and that certainly was a massive discovery. I mean, any large animal being discovered in like the modern era is a big discovery. 
because you'd think we found everything there is to find. It's just not what we thought it was, and it's been blown out of proportion by kind of the media and a lot of pseudoscience. Still an interesting story for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that was really cool. A lot of species being found in fish markets. Now, Rustin, I believe you are up. I am up. All right. Uh, So mine is not actually not entirely unrelated to yours on my topic. My topic is uh, whale fall. A whale fall is actually one of uh, one of the cooler phenomenons in the open ocean in the deep sea because essentially it's it's what happens after a whale dies and falls to the bottom of the uh, the seafloor. Now this essentially creates like an ecological gold rush on the deep sea, the ocean floor, because for the most part. The ocean floor is covered with what is known as the abyssal plain, which is pretty barren. There's not much there. It's just layers and layers of sediment, essentially, that is collected on the bottom of the ocean. And there's definitely all kinds of interesting things for sure, but not much in the way of like large organisms uh, or animals or fish or things like that, because there's just not that much there to eat. Um, And so... Most of the life on the deep sea floor that people are aware of is concentrated around the hydrothermal vents um, with like all the big tube worms and like those crabs and chemosynthesis that goes on there. Yes, I have heard of those. And that's like the only primary production that's going on down there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those were really cool in their own right. They're not what I'm going to be talking about, but they're really cool because up until their discovery in the late 70s, people thought that all life was based on energy that comes from the sun which is not, it turns out is not the case because there are these bacteria around these vents that are using hydrogen sulfide, I believe, to, um, to power their uh, metabolic processes completely independent of the sun. So that was a huge discovery in their own right. But as far as whale falls are concerned, they are, they make up these really cool communities in their own right that are separate from hydrothermal vents and are connected to the energy that comes from the sun because they're, basically these communities that are based around decomposing a whale carcass and it doesn't have to be a whale carcass it could be a large fish or something like that but whales are these huge sources of food that just kind of show up on the ocean floor every now and then and kickstart this amazing process to kind of start from the beginning you um, think you could fit that in a suitcase probably not (laughs) i think we'd have to fold that one in the thirds rustin or maybe like twenty thirds, man. Even if it was a baby whale, like, hey, can we like tuck and roll it? That's what I like to do with my shirts. Make a nice little shirt tube, save space. Just have a whale tube in your suitcase. Yeah, I'll get that past custom. Oh yeah, TSA would love that. Tell them Marjorie Latimer sent me. They'll know what it means, sir. Why do you have a whale in your checked bag? Uh, anyway, so to start from the beginning. Um, whales typically die most often along their migration routes because of, uh, their migrations are very stressful. They're not eating a lot of food. They have to rely on their fat stores. And so if they don't make it, they usually die along their migration routes. Don't whales filter feed? They do, but their, their migratory routes are pretty barren of their food sources relative to their, to the places where they spend their summers around the Arctic. Um, so the kind of, whales kind of go through this uh, light yearly cycle where they spend the summer essentially gorging themselves on food around the poles. And then in the fall, when it starts to get colder, they go to the wintering grounds near the equator, uh, which are relatively barren of food compared to their summering grounds. And then they, and along these migratory routes, they are when most of most, that's when most whale mortality happens is when they're traveling to and from their summer and wintering grounds. I know a good way to avoid that. If I was a whale, I would just not migrate. Then you would probably freeze to death? No. Or die of starvation? No, I'm just better. (laughs) If I was a whale, I would simply not die, and I think... Well, if you were a whale, if you were a whale, you wouldn't be able to, like, tell where the food was because you have no sense of smell. So do whales smell? Probably not. We're going to cut that out. They might they got noses. They have noses. They have blowholes. 
You wouldn't be able to breathe. Well, you'd oh, be able to that, breathe. they don't have they don't have nostrils, do they? No, they don't. I don't think so. It just goes to show how little we actually know about things. Talking about whales. I didn't mean to spend this much time talking about whales. I want to get to the actual cool stuff. It's around. just a blowhole. You are correct. I Google. Oh, how about that? We're credible. We Google and go with the first result. Oh yeah, real uh, real peer reviewed science happening here. <laughs> we got two peers right here. That's all we need. <laughs> yeah, Aaron's my peer. He's reviewing my work. That counts, right? We just kind of look at each other's papers and go, "Yeah, that's all right." <laughs> and then we send it on through. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah, sure. And yeah, so that's that's how science works, right? You come up with you come up with a theory, and somebody says, "Yeah, it sounds about right," and then it's official. Yeah. So the the whales they typically die along along their migration routes. It doesn't really matter where it happens, but that's where usually it happens. And so. After they die, they still have air in their lungs, so they'll float for a few days, but eventually that'll deflate and they'll start sinking. And so usually when they, and then when they finally reach um, the abyssal plane, as I was saying, they're very large. They're huge. People know how large whales are, I think. So they represent this huge source of food that suddenly is available to potential scavengers in an area where there is almost, where there generally is almost no food. So it creates, it's just a bonanza. And so this kind of supports this working theory that I have that crazy shit will always happen when a limiting resource is removed, is, uh, is suddenly no longer a limiting resource. So like when you have a whale fall, you have a whole bunch of food where there's previously was no food. So like Black Friday sales. (laughs) This is... The Black Friday sales of the food chain. Yes, this is the this is really is the Black Friday of the ocean. Rolling backpacks, ninety five percent off. <laughs> We're talking uh, Indonesian silicanth <laughs> fish market prices, twelve bucks while supplies last. Anyway, whale falls. Um, their decomposition typically happens in three main stages. So. In the first stage, you actually have organisms feeding on the flesh and uh, the fat of the whale. And so this is done by hagfish and sleeper sharks, among other organisms. This typically lasts a few months. So um, that just speaks to how much food is available that all these organisms, like hundreds and hundreds of hagfish and sharks, come and feed on these whales. And it still takes them a couple months to actually remove all the flesh from the bone of the whale. So and. these animals, the first ones who arrive, you said like the hagfish and what, what sharks was that again? Sleeper sharks. Sleeper sharks. So do they just wait for these events to happen? Basically, yeah. They're just like scavengers on the bottom of the ocean floor and they kind of live off of these kind of, well, sleeper, they're, sleeper sharks are actually more generalist organisms. They eat a variety of different things, but they do rely a lot on these kinds of event they are the main drivers of this first stage of the process which is really important um but and, and, you know and i could spend a lot of time talking about just this first stage but i really want to get to the other cool stuff because hackfish and sleeper sharks are really really crazy um in their own right and could be totally talked about for an entire podcast but there's other stuff to get to um which is in the second phase this phase is when organisms inhabit the whale's bones. So this is when all the flesh has been removed from the skeleton. There's just the whale skeleton left on the ocean floor at this point. So these organisms come and they inhabit the bones of the whale and the areas surrounding the whale where there's still residual debris and stuff from the first stage that kind of enriches the sediment. And they break down the skeleton and live off of the remaining nutrients from the whale that is left from the first stage. And this brings us to the Osidax worm, which is absolutely crazy. So they're polychaete worms and they live in the bones of dead organisms. Like so just temporarily? No, they spend almost their entire life cycle or their most of their adult life in the bones of decomposing organisms. So they're not parasites. No, they're decomposers. They're only going to go there when it's dead. Yes. So after it dies and all the flesh has been removed, then these worms move in. Um, 
they live in the bones of pretty much any dead organism. Like they've been found in like um, somebody threw a cow, a dead cow in the ocean and saw what to see what would happen. And these worms colonize the bones of the cow. When you said someone, was this like a researcher or <laughs> this was just like a Friday afternoon and they were bored? I'm pretty sure it was a researcher, but I'm not going to rule out that other possibility. Just a couple of frat guys down off the coast of Florida. They got their dad's boat, dead cow. They had the capability to like figure out what was going on with the cow on the bottom of the ocean. So they probably were scientists with some funding and not just somebody like, hey, he would be really cool if we threw a cow in the ocean. Hey, you get four frat guys. That's three peers right there to review your work of tossing a dead cow. <laughs> It could be cool. Um, but yeah, anyway, so these worms, they uh, they inhabit the bones of whales, usually whales, because that's just what's available. And they're kind of shaped like miniature palm trees. So they have these root systems that extend into the bones of the whale, and that's how they do their feeding. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the top of the worm that actually is outside of the bone is uh, are their gills where they conduct their gas exchange mm. and collect the oxygen from the water. So their root systems, or so-called inside the bone, operate by secreting acid, which dissolves the bones, and then symbiotic bacteria within the worm process the available collagen and cholesterol that's released once the bones are dissolved. The worms are able to extract nutrients from the bacteria that they have within them. It's kind of... Uh, my understanding is that it's a little bit like the bacteria that you have in your gut that aids with digestion. Um, it's more essential for the worms than I think our gut bacteria is because without these symbiotic bacteria, the worms would not be able to feed on the bones at all. But it's the situation where like the worms have to break down, actually break down the bones, but then they, in order to process the nutrients, they need these bacteria. So that's where kind of like the mutualistic relationship comes into play that's so interesting that it relies on so much like first you have to have a dead whale i'm assuming they can't live without bones without something dead no they they pretty much just break down bones on so not only do they rely on frat boys throwing dead cows into the ocean <laughs> but they also have to rely on this symbiotic bacteria just to exist yeah it's, uh, it's kind of like the mycorrhizal networks in trees. Like um, the trees need the mycorrhizae to extract nutrients from the soil. But what's interesting about, these symbiotic, about the symbiotic relationship is that in the first part of their life cycle, these worms are just, these worms are just kind of like drifting around like as little single-celled zygotes, really just kind of like little plankton looking for bones to attach to. So they only really... Um, gain the symbiotic partnership when they're juveniles not when they're like really young the type of symbiotic bacteria that the um, that the worm partners with depends on their environment and just kind of what bacteria are around so that that's kind of interesting because like the same species of worm has been found with very specific order that these worms use but uh, within that order these worms will are known to uh, form a symbiotic relationship with any number of different bacteria, which is pretty cool. Now, here's where things really get crazy. Oh, because they weren't already. Oh, yeah, no, this gets so much crazy. Little palm tree worms dissolving whale bones. That's nothing. This is elementary stuff. Learned that in the third grade. Come on, Russ, and give me something real here. Here's what's real. You ready for this? Yeah. So, all worms that are seen drilling into or drilling with the root systems into bones are female. There are male worms. You know how like your mom would say, Oh, you're going to have to struggle to keep the girls off of you when you grow up to be strong and handsome. Yeah. I thought it's because they would be into me, but they're actually, they're running at me with power drills. They're coming at me for my cholesterol throwing jarfuls of acid. <laughs> yes. And it's only polychaete worms that are coming after you. <laughs> it's just the worms. I don't know why this is happening. Yeah. It's only me, too. Your mom was telling you that the, you wouldn't be able to keep the girls away. She didn't tell you that the girls were human. 
Yeah, no, she was trying to tell me about like a secret family curse that I had inherited. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there, there are male worms, but they're microscopic and they live within the bodies of the females. Um, and the females will actually acquire more and more males as they age. So typically when, these, when this kind of interaction is being described, um, female worms are said to have harems of males. And these harems can eventually grow to include hundreds of males by the end of a female worm's lifetime. That is a major victory for males everywhere, I think. While the missus is hard at work drilling into these whale bones, I will just latch on to her and whisper sweet little thoughts. Keep her going. Yeah, just, you know, be supportive. You know, be 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 good moral support. I do think we should adopt this. Like, uh, uh, if your partner is having a rough week and she's hard at work, just latch onto her back and just tell her she's doing a great job. But don't let go. Just hang on there. You know what, Aaron? You are more than welcome to try that. I think that I will... Uh, I don't think I will follow that advice. Anyway, but yeah, back to the worms. There is one species of worm called Osidax priapus, which is the exception to this rule, because there are male worms that are drilling worms and are the same size as the females, and they feed in the same way as the females do. And what's crazy is that they've proven scientifically, these, sciences with, these scientists with their sciences, that... As the, compared to unscientifically proven, where they just make it up and hope no one challenges them. Yeah, those are the those are the people who are throwing cows in the ocean just because they think it's cool. Uh, they've scientifically proven that this one exception species that has males and females which are the same size and both drill is actually evolved from species with miniature males or dwarf males. And they're not really sure how or why this happened. But somehow male worms like grew and started to drill into bones just like females do. In this one species. So what I think is interesting is, aren't a lot of worms hermaphrodites? Yeah, I think so. So why would these... I don't know if they had an ancestor that was a hermaphrodite. I know other polychaetes are, but why would they diverge from this? If well, they I did, don't, I don't know what is the benefit? The, I don't know if that's the ancestral state. What I do know is that um, in the this kind of dwarf male phenotype, is actually pretty common in a lot of, or not necessarily the dwarf male phenotype, but like this um, kind of harem living arrangement is pretty common in species that uh, don't really interact with other members of their species. Like so in areas where individuals of the same species are separated by thousands and thousands of miles, like these worms are, um, it makes a lot of sense just to have like males and females kind of in this one in this kind of living arrangement where they can reproduce really easily because otherwise it would take so much effort to get males and females together to actually make new worms so what so, you're telling me is my relationship advice is valid but only for like north dakota <laughs> fellas you gotta share you find one nice hard-working lady you all just jump on her back tell her she's doing a great job I think that uh, I think that most women would probably run for the hills if that possibility even. <laughs> no, they can't. There's too many guys on their back. Well, they gotta be drilling, you know. They, they gotta support all these goddamn stowaway. <laughs> Every time they leave their house and come back, there's just more guys sleeping on their couch. <laughs> oh god, that sounds terrible. Anyway, it's also worth noting that um, this one worm species is called Priapus because Priapus is the Greek god of male fertility. Just a little fun fact there for a you. A little, little fun yeah. bit for the audience. Exactly. Um, our audience of hopefully one. Hopefully uh, one. I am going to listen to this. Are you not going to? I'm going to listen to it, but, you know, I don't know who else would want to listen to it. I think this would be funny for me to listen to, so it's worth uh, recording. Well, we have two. In theory... If we just keep making new accounts to listen, <laughs> just like create we an can army beat of the bots. system. 
I'm sure we're the first ones to ever come up with that idea. Yes, but this one species of worm, it represents uh, something called an atavism, or reversion or throwback to an ancestral state which exists in the Osidax worm's closest worm relatives. So in other polychaetes that are closely related to the Osidax worm, though, which would be um, the two worms that actually live around hydrothermal vents, they're their closest relatives. They have males and females which are the same size. They don't have this dwarf male phenotype. And so this Osidax priapus that has males and females of the same size is kind of like a throwback to that original ancestral state that still exists in those hydrothermal vent worms. So they are somewhat related to the vent worm. Yes, they are, because they're both polychaete worms. So they're like a very important species at this bottom of the ocean terrain. They're definitely recycling nutrients. They're keeping the food web going. Oh, for sure, for sure. What's interesting about the worms, though, is that they're breaking down the bones they're recycling a lot of the nutrients that otherwise would have just been lost. So they're really vital decomposers in the ocean food web because they support entire deep sea ecosystems because there are other snails and shellfish which feed off of the chemicals that are released when these bones are being broken down by the worms. So they don't eat the worms? I'm sure there are some organisms that do, but a lot of other organisms will more feed on the chemicals that are produced. One of which, funny enough, is hydrogen sulfide, which is the same chemical that is found in hydrothermal vents. So the tube worms are not going to feed off of the byproducts of the bone worms? Uh, no. No, no because the they're going to want to be in the vent. Yeah, yeah the tube worms live near the vent. They're adapted to be in superheated water. Oh, that's right. It's like almost boiling. Yeah. Well, actually, it's it's more than boiling. Because of the extreme pressure down there, the water doesn't boil. It just kind of stays in a liquid form, but superheated from, you know, um, being in close contact with until the Earth's crust. Anyway, um, I'm not a geologist. Don't quote me on any of that stuff. Quote him on everything. This is peer-reviewed. We have two peers right here. Everything is correct. This is science. It's how it works. Yes, this is this is accurate scientific information. But uh, so, like I was saying, there are other organisms like sh- uh, shellfish and snails, which will feed off of the chemicals that are produced by the worms, and will also break down the bones of the whale. But honestly, who cares? Because the worms are so goddamn cool. Whoever would talk spend time talking about the snail after the worms come through and do their thing? There's a third stage of this whale fall phenomenon, where other organisms will just feed off of the residual chemicals that are left over in the sediment and surrounding water. And this process can last for decades or more. So if you like think about it, from the time that a whale falls from the surface of the ocean to the bottom of the abyssal plain, it can support an ecosystem of organisms for decades. That just really goes to show you like how much of a bonanza a whale carcass on the ocean floor really is and like how huge of an event a whale fall is that it can support an ecosystem of decomposers for decades after it first reaches the ocean floor like you could have a kid that is born at the same time that a whale that a whale carcass reaches the bottom of the ocean and then by the time that kid can legally buy alcohol there are still organisms that are existing off of the leftover nutrients from the whale carcass that's like the next best zodiac you know like where's your whale carcass which whale carcass dropped when you were born and you can check on it and we could say like latitude and longitude oh yeah mine's in the middle of the north atlantic oh yeah i got a killer whale just off of the pacific northwest it's out there it's great i've been keeping an eye on it Chucking cows down there to keep them going. <laughs> I really want to support my birthworms. That sounded gross. Anyway. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, it did when you brought it up. Uh, I yeah. got birthworms. It's not contagious. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But yeah, the other thing that's worth bringing up about whale falls is that whale falls don't just happen in the deep sea. Um, they will happen in shallower water areas. But... The communities that exist in shallower water areas aren't as highly specialized as communities that occur in the deep sea. Because in shallower waters, those um, decomposing events are dominated by generalist species. 
there are still some Osidex worms that will that will live on whale carcasses in shallower waters because these worms are found all over the oceans um, at f any at any number of different depths. Basically, anywhere you can find a decomposing whale, you're probably going to find some of these worms because these worms will specialize in different depths, different uh, even different like areas of the bone and different bone types and surfaces. They're actually pretty a pretty diverse group because there are so many different little areas that they can colonize in different species. So it would be as specific as like vertebrae versus like a skull versus like a flipper? Kind of, yeah. It, and that's for some of these worms. Others are generalists and they'll just kind of colonize wherever they can. But others are more specialized and they'll dominate a specific area and specific type of bone. So they're actually a really diverse group. But uh, getting back to the point that I was making, which is that these really highly specialized whale decomposing ecosystems really only exist in the deep sea community because of how much of a bonanza this whale carcass represents on the ocean floor, right? Entire organisms can base their entire life cycle around dead whales, whereas like in shallower areas, the decomposers would be more generalist and would rely on a bunch of different kinds of food sources. Whereas in the deep sea, food is so rare that a lot of the times they have to rely pretty much solely on whale falls and similar events. It's much more impactful, whereas if it's in the shallows, it just stinks. Pretty much, yeah. It's just like a Tuesday. It's like, oh, there's some more dead whale. And all the museum curators come rushing out to stuff it into their taxis and take it back. Yeah. I wonder if, they, if the cab driver would have been more willing to drive the taxidermist around if she had a, a suitcase full of polychaete worms. Imagine she comes the second time, he recognizes her, hey, 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 hold up, it's worms, all right? <laughs> let's calm down. You're at a 10, let's take it back to a 3. <laughs> Come on, just grow up. They're calm bone down. worms, I took them out of a dead whale. But that, that is that is my piece. Pretty much an overview of whale falls, and a very specific description of bone dissolving worms well thank you for sharing that that was very interesting never would have thought that a single dead whale would be that important yeah i mean it really is like i remember like hearing about whale falls throughout biology classes that i take that i've taken over the years but not a lot of people really know about them that much because they a lot of the attention in the deep sea gets focused on things like you know like anglerfish or like hydrothermal vents but whale falls in and of themselves represent their own really cool ecological communities that support really, really fascinating species in their own right. And uh, they deserve to get more attention. Bone worms. The kids love those. Kids love bone worms. Bone worms and coelacanths are just the next hottest pets. Everyone's itching to get one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I realize that people are probably going to listen to this this uh, this episode and be like, "Well, you know, it, it, it could be cool." And then listen it to could it, be like, cool. And they're going to like they're going to be like, "Oh, they're talking about bone worms and coelacanths. Never mind. We probably just lost our first and only listener." Uh, I think they bailed about twenty minutes in. Probably, yeah. <laughs> oh, you think about it, you could get like a goldfish bowl, right? Just just set it like on your on your desk every now and then. You chuck in a bone. Just have a bunch of bones lying around you. Someone ask you about it, you just go, oh, I'm feeding my bone worms. It would, it, would, it would have to be a shallow water species of bone worm. I don't know how you're going to get a deep sea one. Very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. I know some frat guys, uh, they chuck a lot of cows in the water. <laughs> they might have access to a sub. Yeah, they want to see what's going on with their cows, you know? They like to check on them. It is scientific. It's peer-reviewed. They have at least three other people there with them. <laughs> yeah. Two of them are their parents, but hey. Yeah, two of them are their parents. It still counts. It still counts. All right, well, that is the first episode. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Primordial Soup Pot. I don't know why you would have put yourself through that. For those few that did manage to stick around, we will continue this podcast maybe on a monthly basis. And every week we're going to each pick a different topic of kind of the strange side of natural history, zoology, and ecology, and bring that to you in this lovely podcast format. With that being said, Rustin, would you like to pick a theme for next episode, or would you just like to go in random and we each pick whatever our heart desires? I feel like we could pick a theme. I like the idea of picking a theme. All right, well, I do have an idea. What's that? Poop. Poop. That's the theme.
Wow, we're just literally giving our audience shit. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> they know. Oh, they know. Great, great job, Aaron. Way to, way, to really, way to really keep an audience hooked. I feel we can fully embrace the weirdness. You could have you you picked something cool like rainforest. There's all kinds of weird shit that happens in rainforest. Everyone knows about a rainforest. They're always talking about saving them or tearing them down. You realize how much cool stuff there is in a rainforest? Yeah, but everyone knows about a rainforest. Yeah, but they don't know about everything that's in a rainforest. Plus, we want people to actually listen to this show. Okay, well, what do you think should be a good topic? I think migration. Migration? Yeah. Okay, I think I can work with that, but we are going to push poop back. That yeah, will we, happen. Uh, okay. Uh, because I, I may or may will, not have already found something pretty good. I will concede on poop. Okay, so next episode, migrations. All right, sounds good. This has been the Primordial Soup Pot. I am Aaron. I'm Rustin. And thank you for listening. And we will work on our outros because, goddamn, that was terrible.